Ian Over My Head's Connecting to the Ocean Season was made possible with support from the Ocean Frontier Institute Module I and Memorial University. Well, I'm in over my head, no one told me. Trying to keep my footprint small was harder than I thought it could be. I'm in over my head, what do I really need? Trying to save the planet, oh, will someone please save me? Trying to save the planet, oh, will someone please save me? Welcome to In Over My Head. I'm Michael Bartz. While connecting to the ocean and exploring small-scale fisheries and governance, I wanted to learn more about safety and legal protection and risk prevention. This is Connecting to the Ocean Part 4, Safety and Order. What's your connection to the ocean? My connection to the ocean, um, I would say, is mostly um, as an open water swimmer. Um, I've done the longest open water swim that I've done is a 16-kilometer swim around the island of Perhentian, uh, Pulau Perhentian Bazaar, which is the larger of the two Perhentian islands. So I spend a lot of time um, in the water training, um, of course, I can train in the pool, but the best uh, way to simulate and train for open water swimming is actually in the ocean. So when I get the chance and the opportunity, um, you'll find me in the ocean. My first conversation had me learning about safety risks in the fisheries. So my name is Barb Neese. Uh, I'm an honorary research professor here at Memorial University. My background is in sociology, but uh, I've done a lot of interdisciplinary work over the last few decades, mostly focused on fisheries in marine and coastal communities. When we're looking at um, the fisheries and fish harvesting, what sort of safety concerns are there? Well, why don't we just take a step back from that because everybody always goes to fishing. But actually, I got involved initially around seafood processing, you know, which is where most of the women were, you know, and they tend to be really lowly paid. And of course, more and more of them are now temporary or international migrant workers, right? So the types of safety issues you see there are really significant, right? I would say ergonomics is a big one. You know, repetitive work, lifting, standing, and a high pressure type of work, particularly in the almost exclusively seasonal fisheries that we have now. And so, like, I'm looking at the crab fishery this year. And, you know, it was seven weeks delay because there was a strike over the low prices. So they are processing with the same number of workers, basically, between 10 and 12 million pounds a week of snow crab, right? That's a lot of product. You know, so you've got workers, many of whom, again, the international migrant workers, wouldn't have worked in the industry before unless they would have been coming here for several years, relatively new work. But even seasonal workers are off uh, and then bang, they're into it and they are into it intensively. You just go from zero to massive seven days a week, long shifts and very physically demanding work. That's sort of where I started, but then I did quite a lot of work on respiratory problems that have to do with crab processing, what they call crab asthma, occupational asthma to snow crab. When they process, cook, process, clean the crab, it aerosolizes proteins, and then they get breathed in, and you get skin contact and so on, and a certain proportion of the labor force eventually gets sensitized uh, to those proteins. They all develop skin problems asthmas for the most part, and they can get progressively worse. So that's a pretty serious occupational uh, illness. And the, the thing was the research that had been done already in Quebec in the 80s had shown that if you kept working at this once you were sensitized, there was a real risk that you'd develop chronic asthma. Initially, you just you go to your doctor, get all your puffers and everything in the spring so you don't lose time at work and you go through the season, then you put them in the cupboard and then you go back the next year. But a certain proportion of people, you know, they could hardly walk from the plant to the lunchroom or they can't play hockey, they can't do exercise, they can't paint their houses, they can't 
right? It really was very, very serious for some people. And they would be doing things like going to the hospital to be on oxygen so they could go back to work and so on. And this, all of this was going on, right? But nobody was really doing anything about it. The healthcare system wasn't doing anything. They were just treating people. So that's how I really got involved in marine and coastal health and safety stuff. And then we did a big project on fishing safety and then another one as well. I asked Barb about the role of governance and safety. So the governance issues, which is what we're looking at more now, but we've always looked at governance because the thing is, how do you know what the hazards are? Uh, You need good statistics. You need to break them down. You need to know cause of accident. You need to, you know, have access to the industry to figure all of that out. And so if the governance system doesn't give you those statistics, it tends to keep things invisible. And then you need, you know, really good opportunities to get on board and a whole body of people whose job it is in some sense to pay attention to how do you, when you've got, you know, 4,000 vessels spread across the coast, all fishing different fisheries, using different gear, out at different times of the year, uh, and your health and safety capacity is basically on shore, doesn't have a boat. <laughs> I mean, unless somebody dies, you know, then Transport Canada, the Transportation Safety Board will come in if a boat disappears and they'll do an investigation. But for the most part, there isn't much in the governance structure around prevention or there wasn't then. It's better now. I mean, now we have the Newfoundland Labrador Fish Harvesting Safety Association, and it's played an important role in terms of training, identifying hazards, uh, working with researchers. They're really important players now, and I hope that they will survive, right? I hope that that safety association will continue to be funded because they're very, very important. And it was them uh, that we did this paper on the COVID pandemic. They played such a critical role. In a way, it was kind of fortuitous that the executive director of the Newfoundland Labrador Fish Harvesting Safety Association, so she has an advisory board, and she works very closely with the union. And she was a nurse, so she knew public health. And she knew as soon as she started to see stuff what this could be. And so she was able to sit down with the union and say, look, this is coming. It starts in March. So they're about to open the inshore fishery. So you can have all these people going fishing on small boats. What are you going to do? How can you have a fishery? I mean, everything shuts down, right? They don't know much about this and how it spread and so on and so forth. You know, the the companies just wanted them to go fishing. Uh, they, you know, they plants. They wanted the plants up and running. They wanted because you know the season had to start on time. But the union also represents the plant workers, and they were very concerned about plant worker health as well. And they saw it from the beginning as an occupational health threat, which it wasn't seen as an occupational health threat in many parts of Canada, even though it clearly was. So they worked really hard and had access to inshore councils and so on. So they could very easily communicate and discuss with the fish harvesters in particular, but also with the processing workers, different ideas for how you would fish safely in the context of uncertainty and fear. The other thing is fear. These are mobile, you know, it's like truckers, right? So the fish harvesters are moving from community to community. There's worry they're going to spread the disease or that people are going to go onto their boats and make them sick, right? So they came up with a, you know, the best practices kind of protocol that was reasonable, that they thought was doable. And because of that, the season was allowed to go ahead. Otherwise, they would have lost an entire season. So it was, it's really interesting. And also from a governance perspective, right, it was that kind of capacity to rapidly mobilize. The knowledge was there. The leadership was there. The people were there at the table, and they were able to, in a way, solve a problem. And there, as far as I know, there were no outbreaks. There were no real problems. Now, the, the thing is that the shutdown of the province probably helped a lot. Right, because once they shut everything down, they didn't let people in and out of the province. If there'd been a whole lot of people coming and going, I think it would have been tougher. But I don't think it's just pandemics. I think really effective governance in terms of fishing safety without a, an active joint health and safety committee, right, that involves the workers 
you know, where they, they have a voice and so you they can bring to management and there's a forum to sort it out, hazards that they've identified. But with fishing, small-scale fishing is just so dispersed, right? So if you didn't have a union, you didn't have that kind of organizational structure. And then the expertise, is the expertise was so critical. And again, it's like, is that going to work? Is it not going to work? You know, we need an opportunity to have this conversation with people because what you'll get otherwise is a cookie cutter, you know, imposition of a particular solution. You know, a good example of that is stability. So Transport Canada really wants stability testing for all of the fishing vessels. It's very expensive. There's not enough people around to do it. So for the almost inevitably, it's been very slow to bring that into the small-scale sector, and it's not clear that it makes much difference. But what the Fish Harvesting Safety Association said, but yeah, you might have a boat that's stable at the dock, but... You know, the critical thing is that you know your boat because things you do on the boat can affect stability, right? So you stack it, you put a whole bunch of lobster pots too high, or you do this, or you do that. That changes the stability of your vessel. So simply having stability testing for vessels is not in and of itself going to stop vessels from capsizing. You have to have a knowledgeable skipper and knowledgeable crew And they need to understand that what they're doing is affecting what they call this dynamic stability of the vessel. So, you know, again, this sort of top-down regulatory approach that you've used for great big boats and you want to use it for little boats isn't adequate. It's just not an effective, in and of itself, it's not an effective solution. And it might just turn people off. The whole fleet, the fishing fleet, particularly the 65-footers, 45 to 65-footers, are not particularly good vessels. And that has to do with fisheries management policies. They weren't allowed to make their vessels as long as they wanted because of the cod moratorium. And, you know, they thought, well, there's problems with excess capacity and they're going to make their boats bigger and then we'll have more capacity. So we're going to limit the vessel length. So what do they do? You have big boats that are wider, deeper, you know, they're boxes. They're less fuel efficient, and they're actually less stable. So that's the whole area of how fisheries management can have significant health and safety consequences. You know, we can see it again in the snow crab fishery right now. The companies uh, have imposed trip limits on boats. So you're only allowed to go once a week, and you're only allowed to land so much crab. You have so much crab quota and your day comes up and you have a small boat and it's bad weather. So then you lose your place in the queue. Well, that's an incentive to go fishing in bad weather. There's no question. So, you know, how can you fix that problem? All right. That problem needs to be fixed. Yeah, no, yeah. It seems like like you mentioned those kind of cookie cutter solutions or, or not involving the fish harvesters. And, and, and to me, it sounds like there's a lot of demands from the industry itself, right, just to produce and to work. And it seems like the fish harvesters, at least, and maybe the plants, you know, they, they just are, are forced to maybe cut corners or, or be less safe in order to just yeah, make a living, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, the case of the plant workers, I mean, Maria Major said, you know, I mean, ideally, from their point of view, you would be spreading out your catch, right? And this is the the advantage of having a small-scale fishery and owner-operated vessels is that they, you know, we don't, we don't empty out our rural communities. You know, they don't even necessarily have to land what they harvest. They can ship it directly to market. It's done on factory freezer trawlers. So it's sustained rural communities in all kinds of critical ways. But the downside is that... You know, you end up with either no trip limits. So, I mean, you you get this boom bust, but even with the trip limits, obviously, we're still getting this boom bust, which is physically for plant workers very hard to handle. So the question is, there are dilemmas everywhere, but often safety is an afterthought. And I think particularly when you're dealing with something that is progressive, you know, people stand up and notice when a boat sinks. Right, but somebody, uh, an old aging labor force that actually can hardly move their arm, right, or their back or whatever, you know, is that aging? Is that, you know, is that the job? Uh, and the same was true of crab asthma. It was gradual onset. Some people smoked. Oh, is it smoking? Is it aging? Is it? 
And, uh, you know, you don't have healthcare professionals who even know about it, right, who are, would know how to diagnose it. They just give them puffers. Yeah. And, and when you're interviewing some of these fish harvesters, was there kind of a sense of like toughness or like they just they power through it kind of thing? Like, is there kind of well, that? Well, yeah. I mean, that you know, that that's the whole thing. The, the reason why fishing is dangerous is because of machismo, right? This whole male culture, toxic male culture to some degree. I think there's probably an element of that there. If you're asking about injuries, you have to ask carefully because half the time I'll say, oh, no, I haven't had any. Well, I mean, I lost my finger. You know, I broke my arm. I... But it's like injury is a normalized, in a sense, part of the occupation, loss of hearing, very normalized. So it's an element. The thing is, you know, I've always thought about this way, you know, a fish harvester is standing on the deck of a boat in a changing, dynamic ocean environment, doing something this week and maybe something quite different the next week. Are you going to go and tell them, you know, you have to do it this way or you have to, you know, it's just so complex. You know, my colleague, Nicole Power, said, well, let's go and ask them how they keep themselves safe. Because what you tend to get is a kind of... um, they're the problem, individualized treatment, and that really negates the knowledge that they have, right? The research I've read says participatory approaches to fishing safety are the best way to go. So the question is, how do you do that? You know, and they learn, they may think something is safe, but if if you tell them to do it this way, but you don't really know much about fishing, let's face it, Right. How many people who do health and safety actually know how to fish, right? Actually understand the dynamic environment people are working in. So it really makes sense to start with an assets-based approach. What do you do to keep yourself safe? You know, the simple question, what do you do with a rope? Because if you get caught in that rope, you are gone, right? So how do you manage rope? You know, and then you could work with them around, well, how could you manage it better or more safely? Or, and that might take a redesign of the deck, and that might take a different shaped boat. And then you start running into fisheries management <laughs> regulations and so on. You could understand why fishermen might get kind of pissed off about certain kinds of regulations. Was there anything else you wanted to cover, Barb, on, on safety and the research you're doing that we haven't covered that you think is important to talk about? Health and safety research in general is massively undersupported in Canada. I would say, look, you know, most people spend like eight hours a day, 10 hours a day of their lives at work. Like if we're trying to understand health and health determinants, you know, and what's causing chronic and other types of problems, to not pay attention to the role of work is foolish, right? It just makes no sense. And they're high risk. Maritime work is risky work, right? It is. The second thing is in a community, loss of a fishing boat is massive, right? I mean, that could be an entire family, you know, all the men and or men and women in a working age family, and they would have connections right across that community and, and so on. I can remember Jim Wellman, he used to, he ran the fisheries broadcast for a long time. And he, we had a conference on where we were talking about fishing safety, and he stood up and he talked about, because he's done these books called Last Voyages, about vessels that sank. And he, you know, he just pleaded for somebody to do research on PTSD among fish harvesters because he just saw it over and over and over again. They'd lost somebody overboard. Again, it's a close family member. They're carrying the, the sort of grief and guilt and uh, the fear and all of that stuff with them all the time, and there's no resources in these communities for something like that. And it isn't even recognized. There's not much out there on it. Yeah, it seems like it's kind of the same problem we've been discussing, where it's maybe a lack of forethought, and you don't have enough people focusing in on that, right? Yeah, but also, again, in an expert-driven model, then you need a whole bunch of experts. In a participatory model, you acknowledge from the beginning that there's a lot of expertise there. The question is, so what's the place for certain kinds of training and expertise and continuity? And, you know, what are the organizational structures that you would need? And, you know, and the, you know, the Coast Guard Auxiliary is all fishing boats, right? They are the people who do a lot of the rescues. You know, if you were trying to do search and rescue without the Coast Guard Auxiliary, it wouldn't make any sense. So start there. 
start with that kind of structure. And I, I think that is what the Safety Association is trying to do. It just needs more resources, and it needs to be understood as, a, as critically important. Next, I would chat about the weather and why it matters to fish harvesters. I'm Joel Finnis. I am a climatologist currently working with Memorial University's Department of Geography. So you're part of the submodule of informing governance responses in a changing ocean called marine safety. And that has to do with weather, right? So maybe tell me a bit about that submodule. Yeah, so that uh, the weather bit is really where I came in. Um, before this project, I had been introduced to the original lead of this piece, Dr. Barb Neese in sociology, who was starting to have some conversations about safety and weather. Her field is is safety, right? She's been working in marine safety for decades. And she'd started to engage a little bit more with with weather as a risk factor. And that cracked open a lot of discussions between her and I, where I would share some information about, say, for example, how a weather forecast gets produced and how forecasters think about this kind of information. And her response would be, wait, that's how that gets produced? That's what that is? And she'd talk to me about how fish harvesters would use weather information. And I'd say, wait, wait a second, that's what they're doing with this? And so we'd realized that there were a lot of assumptions about the forecasting world and the end users, specifically fisheries end users, that neither of us understood individually. But when we started having discussions... I mean, it really sparked a lot of research ideas. And so that led to an early research collaboration that then spun into this. So from your side of things, yeah, how does uh, a meteorologist, right? Mm -hmm. How does a meteorologist create a, you know, a, a weather? I don't know all the terminology, but <laughs> <laughs> how do they predict the weather? <laughs> how do they make a forecast? Yeah, how, yeah. Do they so, how does a meteorologist make the forecast? I mean, when you think about the marine forecast, it's... In Canada, the, the traditional product, the core product, is the uh, marine forecast from Environment Canada or Environment Cl and Climate Change Canada now, right? And that's a very simplified, generalized description of what you're going to expect for a massive area over the next couple of days, right? And there's even l more limited information about what you'd see like three to five days after that. So if that's all you see and that's all you're looking at, then you won't really be aware of all of the processes and information and expertise that goes into producing that, right? You just get something that says, you know, it, it could be cloudy or there's a there's a high wave warning for this location from this time to this time. But ultimately what that is, is this distillation of multiple models telling us what we could see into the future, interpreted by multiple meteorologists, all in discussion with one another, both between shifts and mid-shift. Uh, particularly when we're starting to approach a high-impact event, right? More people will become involved. More people will be weighing in. And the goal there is to get the most important information into the hands of the people who will be able to make decisions around it, right? The problem is, though, that in today's environment, meteorologists very rarely have a chance to actually see what decisions get made. They're trying to anticipate user needs. They're trying to think about how this might get used. They're trying to anticipate what impacts might occur. And they'd like to get that out, but then, you know, they're never going to hear back from the end user. That's not necessarily new, but it's definitely amplified since forecast offices has, have moved towards, I describe as more automation and more online delivery and less in terms of the human to human interactions, right? So once in Canada, there were things like information lines that were heavily advertised and quite frequently used. So if you were a if you were a fish harvester, if you were somebody working in fisheries and you were trying to anticipate what the weather was going to be like, or you had questions about what the forecast was discussing, you could call up this line and say, hey, you know, what are we going to see in this area where I'm going to be? And the forecast would have a discussion with you, right? That phone line is still in existence, but it briefly went to a pay-for-use model, which of course means that a lot of people said, well, I'm not going to do this anymore. Uh, the use dropped off. More people started relying on online delivery tools anyway. So that phone line quietly became non-pay, like free for use again. But of course, people didn't come back to it. And it hasn't been heavily advertised the way that it once had. So yeah, you've got these isolated meteorologists who are thinking about all this information and talking to their colleagues and delivering this stuff and hoping that it helps somebody, but are a little bit frustrated with the fact that they don't know who's using it and for what, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't know about that phone line. 
And so you said there's a, a you know a disconnect between the forecasters and the fish harvesters. And so is is some of your research that you're working on now trying to connect those two? So we spent a lot of time taking a look at how forecasters think about the marine forecasting process, and then a lot of work as well taking a look at how uh, fisheries made use of those. Right. So we we got a better understanding of what the uh, decision making process is within those those fisheries. And what was useful about that research is that we really came to understand that a lot of anxieties that marine meteorologists have about how their information might get used or how people might be using what I I wouldn't necessarily call them competing products, but other sources of weather information were perhaps a little bit unfounded or um, unwarranted is maybe a better word, right? So for example, if I talked to meteorologists, they were a few years ago, rather concerned about the proliferation of these these online weather model visualization tools, things that you can find in places like windy.com or Wavefinder. There's there's all kinds of these tools that are just meant to help you see weather models. So you can basically pick out a point and say, well, what does the weather model say is going to happen at this location? The caveat that all the meteorologists have is that that is one model visualization, and the visualization is probably distorting the resolution of the model. So you get a sense that there's there's more precise information here and that it can distinguish between, say, a location and another point that's just 10 kilometers away, and it might give you different, different answers. That's not what the model's doing. That's just interpolation between two data points, but it gives the idea that you've got more precision than actually exists. And people were very concerned that they'd ignore the broader marine forecast coming from Environment Canada, which would highlight these risks and would just take a look at an online visualization tool that would tell them what they wanted to hear, right? If they can point to a location and say, well, it's going to be fine here, I'm going to go out. They might miss the fact that another dozen model runs say it's not going to be safe for you to be out there. Ultimately, when we take a look at how this stuff gets used, though, it really aligns well with what the meteorologists say the thing should be used for and how it should be implemented, right? So if I talk to a fish harvester, they might say, oh, you know, I I like windy. That's what I pay attention to. That's the thing I go to the most. But when you ask them what they actually do with it, they say, well, you know, I take a look at the Environment Canada forecast and I get a sense of what I should be looking for. And then I go to something like windy and I'll figure out what time those problems are supposed to arrive and whether they're going to be in the areas that I'm, I'm supposed to be in or whether they're going to be off in this other region of this massive forecast zone. Uh, and if it's not going to impact me, maybe I'll I'll still go out. Or alternately, if it's supposed to pass by before I start doing the dangerous activity of fishing, I might do the safer activity of getting out to my grounds and just wait to see if it actually clears up the way the model says it will. And if it does, we'll go ahead. And that's more or less how the the meteorologists would say this should be used, right? It's for adding additional context and maybe a little bit of timing to some of those broader interpretations that you see in that big, high-level environment Canada, watch out for this type forecast. And with those forecasts, is there a certain amount of interpretation that the fish harvester has to do when when they're reading it? Absolutely. And they're interpreting across multiple resources, right? So they're not taking a look at just one app. They're not taking a look at just one forecast. They're taking a look at a bunch of different informations for often very wide geographic areas, right? So they might have to go through several forecast zones before they get to their fishing grounds. And so they'll be looking at multiple forecasts from multiple locations from many, many sources. And it's not like they're even interpreting that on their own, right? They'll be talking to their colleagues, people on their vessels. They'll be talking to people on other vessels. They'll be trying to get a sense of what other people think about this weather. So it's not even an individual decision, right? It's ultimately a collective choice. Now, there is also sort of this, this tendency uh, for fish, uh, fish harvesters to sort of take a look at what they expect the weather will, will look like. And as soon as one vessel says, well, I've decided based on our conversations and all this that I'm going out, there's a higher chance that other vessels are going to follow, right? But in the same way, as soon as one vessel says, look, I've decided this is too dangerous, other people will also say, okay, well, if they're not going out, probably I shouldn't either. So ultimately, a lot of that decision-making is done in the interest of, of safety, right? It's not as cavalier or cowboyish as I think even many of the fish harvesters will initially describe it, right? Uh, if I talk to them in an interview and ask them, okay, what about weather and, and how to use it and what do you think about the forecast? I'll often get a lot of like grumbling, well, you know, they're never right anyway. But if you then say, well, so do you just ignore it? They're like, God, I'd never ignore it. No, not at all. No, <laughs> you pay attention to it. You're always watching it. The the way they phrase it is you you have to make your own forecast, which means I've got to take all this information and put it together and make a decision on my own, which, you know, frankly, is is the way I think a lot of this information ideally should be used, right? 
So when talking about weather and safety, what are some risks that weather can bring to, to fishing and fish harvesters? The problem is that even when the weather's perfect, fishing is not a safe occupation, right? I mean, this is this is a moving platform in a changeable environment. Everything off of your boat is potentially risky, right? So yeah, the chance of injury of slips, uh, trips, of, of falling into the water, they exist anyway. But as soon as you start throwing in some rough seas, as soon as you start throwing in some high winds, colder temperatures, et cetera, then the risks start going up, right? You can face anything from high sea swells that make it impossible to actually get out on deck and do any kind of work to icing events where you've just got fine spray from the ocean that is super cooled and snap freezing onto the hulls of the ships, making them basically a, a floating skating rink, right? They also pose risks to the vessels themselves. So, you know, you've got to worry about the whole thing capsizing, not just you being knocked around on this thing. If you take a look at most incident reports in fisheries, and there's a lot of them, right? I mean, it's the most dangerous occupation in Canada, if not the world. If you take a look at the incident reports, they'll often cite that weather is a factor. They might not get specific about what the weather was, but in every single case, like weather of some kind is playing a role. I guess, you know, in the context of a changing climate and possibly changing weather, if there are more, you know, like you said, high impact events, would that impact the fishing industry? I mean, certainly more bad weather is going to translate to greater risk in fisheries, right? I think a bigger problem, though, could be maybe not even a bigger problem, but a different problem that could be just as big or bigger is the changes in the timings of events, right? So it might not even be that you get more storms. But if, for example, oceans are warmer earlier and later than they were before, then that can shift when we see and where we see some of these these major storms passing by, whether that's a, a heavy winter storm or a uh, even something like a, a post-tropical transition. I shouldn't say post-tropical transition. I should call them a hurricane because frankly, they're old hurricanes. They're retired hurricanes. They aren't technically hurricanes anymore because they're not getting energy the same way they used to when they come to Canada. Um, so we call them post-tropical transitions, which I think sometimes makes people think, well, it's after tropical, so I don't have to worry about it. It doesn't sound as serious. It's not though, right? It's, 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 it's still an incredibly dangerous system. And in many ways, it's more dangerous than it was when it was a, a low-level hurricane, right? A category one hurricane. When you've got a post-tropical transition that is category one or category two uh, wind speeds, it does a couple of things. That system moves much faster than it did when it was a hurricane, which means you've got less time to get out of the way. And they also tend to get stretched out. So they end up taking up more space and affecting a larger area. So, you know, as we start to see ocean temperatures change, we can see timing and when we expect these storms to occur can start to shift. And the locations that they show up in can start to shift as well. And so you might find that you are used to dealing or fishing at certain times of year when you never have to worry about these things. And now you do, right? So new hazards because of shifts in climate change. But you'll also see that fish species may start to move uh, and may start to proliferate in new locations, which means that you might find yourself following the fish to areas in which you didn't used to fish uh, that have different climates, different hazards, different risks. And I, I do want to stress that response opportunities are important to think about here too, right? If you're fishing off the coast of, of Newfoundland, you've got search and rescue opportunities around Newfoundland and also nearby in Nova Scotia, right? So, so you, can, you can respond relatively quickly. As you move into the Labrador Sea, there's much less in the way of search and rescue resources that are, are existing there. The amount of time it takes for somebody to get to you if an incident occurs can go up. So it's not even that you're, you're necessarily facing a more extreme uh, hazard. It's just that when an incident occurs, your chance of it becoming a severe incident because you can't get uh, help quickly goes way up. We talked a little bit before about the disconnect between some of the, the forecasters and the end users. I'll stress that the, the meteorologists don't love this. They'd much rather have more frequent connections with end users. And when those connections occur, uh, fish harvesters themselves are overwhelmingly in favor of them. So when we started having discussions with 
forecasters and end users here in Newfoundland, it was we, we had some very general discussions about how forecasts get used and, and you know how they connect with with forecasters. And the answer was not really very often. But when we shifted and had comparable discussions with people in Nova Scotia, this one particular forecast opportunity kept showing up, and it was around the lobster fishery. So what happens in the lobster fishery in, in Atlantic Canada as a whole? is that you've got these defined lobster fishing areas that somebody has a license for. And if you have a license for that zone, then you've got a particular season that opens up. When the season starts, all these vessels rush out. They're loaded with traps. In fact, often overloaded. They've got the heaviest weight they're going to carry all season. They've got to get out to their preferred fishing grounds and drop these traps. Because once you've dropped a trap, you're basically claiming that particular location for as long as the season lasts or you decide to move your traps. So if you know that there's better catches in particular locations, then you're going to rush out to try to beat the competition to claim some of that territory before it all gets picked up. A few decades ago, opening day meant regardless of what the weather was, you were going out. You were going to take that risk. The weather had to be absolutely atrocious and nobody else would be going out for you to decide, I'm not going to compete with this which inevitably led to a lot of uh, weather-driven incidents. If the weather was even slightly bad, you'd end up with multiple emergency calls within a few hours of everybody leaving port. The solution was to have port authorities and fisheries representatives collectively decide whether weather was bad enough to warrant a delay. And so they'll have a conference call 24 hours before the posted opening date, They'll have a discussion about what the forecast is, and then they will make a decision about you know whether to go ahead. Almost always that decision is made in the interests of safety. In the last few years, they've started those calls by inviting an Environment Canada meteorologist to talk to them about the weather. So they're not just looking at the weather forecast and interpreting for themselves. They have this expert come in who is going to say, well, this is why we, we put this in the forecast. This is what we think is going to happen. This is what time we expect it's going to occur. And then all of these fisheries representatives and port representatives will start asking questions, right? Well, you know, this this model I was looking at said that this was going to be happening. Why are you saying this is going to happen? And the meteorologists would have a chance to respond to all of that. And so the fisheries reps end up learning a lot about how the forecast ends up being built and what else is hidden inside of that forecast they don't necessarily see explicitly. On the meteorologist end, they actually get to sit around for the rest of that call if they'd like to and see how the decision gets made and see what decision gets made. It's it's an incredibly rare thing for a meteorologist to say, this is the forecast I gave, and now I know how it's been used. And so they value it a lot, the meteorologists do. And if I talk to the fish harvesters, they overwhelmingly support the presence of that meteorologist as well. And in fact, we had a number of them say, well, this should be done in every fishery. And frankly, not every fishery is run the same way. And so maybe there's not the same clear decision point where a meteorologist might be valuable. But just the fact that people are open to inviting them in is exciting for Environment Canada meteorologists who would like to have more of those contacts. Mm-hmm. Nice. No, it sounds really productive. So, so do you think that there's going to be more of those connections happening in the future? I mean, I hope so. I think that that's, that's something meteorologists would like to see. They want more connection. But I, I think the other thing that they really value there and that I see as value is that these kinds of interactions really showcase what meteorologists do. As with so many other things, Michael, there's this push towards automation, right? We can just have computers that will interpret all this this weather data, and they will just spit out a best practices AI automated uh, forecast for every single location that we would want to look at. The value of the human element in here is that after seeing model runs for the same location again and again, they understand some of the inherent biases in those models. They will be able to correct for some of them. And we see this in the case of, of major events. Uh, they will be taking a look at not just the models that are being produced in Canada, but weather models being produced in Europe and the US and basically anywhere where they can this, get this information. And they will constantly be comparing our native models to those other centers' models. Uh, in the case of Hurricane Dorian, this was incredibly valuable. They were taking a look at Canada's weather models, and this this happens all the time. With that particular storm, other models, I think it was it was from Europe, were just tracking it a little bit better. So when they compared what the models thought was going to happen to what actually occurred on an hour-by-hour hour or six-hourly basis, they were seeing that these other centers' models were just capturing this particular system better. 
And so they were able to say, well, okay, we're not going to pay attention to Canada's models right now. We're going to shift to the ones that are performing better. Uh, and there will be other times when other centers across the world will be saying, well, we're ditching our models. We're going with the Canadian one. It's doing better. And they'll start to emphasize that kind of thing. And it's harder for automated systems to really catch those nuances sometimes and respond accordingly. And so, yes, you actually get to see the value of the forecaster in practice, which, again, is something that, that meteorologists love because I think a lot of them are feeling a little undervalued these days. Lastly, I would learn about legal protection and risk prevention. My name is Desai Shan. I'm assistant professor in Occupational Health and Safety, Division of Community Health and Humanities, uh, Faculty of Medicine, Memorial University. So I'm a social legal researcher. My uh, research expertise is mainly focusing on the occupational health and safety legal protection available for people engaged in fishing industry. With um, safety risks, what sort of safety concerns are there with people who are working in, in fisheries or, or aquaculture? Well, this is a wide range of occupational health and safety hazards. Uh, but more broadly speaking, we have the prevention and protection branches. So for prevention, we're trying to avoid accidents as much as we can. For the protection is if the accidents, injuries, illness occur, we should make sure there is a sufficient uh, resources for our people working in the fishing industry to get covered. So this is basically two branches. So for the prevention side, I'm working on the noise exposure and hearing loss. So for that part, basically, we all kind of, if we have an experience working in this industry, we know that the noise level could be extremely high on the fishing vessels. And with the long exposure to those noise, and sometimes, let's say, we could recommend personal protective equipment, but usually from a safety perspective, that's usually the last resort. So actually, there are more efforts should to be made at the eliminate and the control level, rather than to say just encourage individual to use personal protective equipment, such as the hearing protector. And one of our research basically showing that it's not easy for the fish harvesters to use the hearing protector. The reason is because even though to protect their hearing, protecting health is kind of a priority, but they also need to ensure their safety operation. They need to maintain critical communication with each other. And the current equipment not that user-friendly in that working environment. So unfortunately, there's still a very high percentage of the fishing harvesters have to claim hearing loss compensation claim. Then that leads to my next stage question is protection. So are our fishing harvesters well protected in the current legal system in Atlantic Canada? So what I did is a cross-provincial comparative legal analysis to identify whether certain provinces probably have a stronger protection, some other provinces may not have that stronger protection for the fishing harvesters. So if we take Newfoundland and Labrador as example, uh, the Workplace NL, the Workers' Compensation Board of NL, do have compensation coverage for all fishing harvesters. But the gap is off-season. So basically being protected on-season, but if they are doing repairs off the season, well, unfortunately, that may not be covered. For other provinces, not in all Atlantic provinces have specific occupational health and safety standards for fish harvesters. For example, Nova Scotia and Newfoundland, they do have specific regulations available there. But for New Brunswick and PI, those regulations, those guidelines, much more limited. And this also being identified by the Transportation Safety Board Accident Investigation Report. So there needs to be more regulatory training, awareness, educational uh, efforts, trying to improve uh, fish harvesters' ability to identify and also to manage the hazards on board the vessel. So that is basically my, my research about from the two sides, prevention and protection. Yeah, there's a lot going on there for sure. Um, yeah, I guess maybe we could for a bit touch on the prevention side. So yeah, talking about like the hearing loss, for example. Um, and yeah, it seems like like you mentioned that, yeah, they just need to work in that environment. They can't always be wearing the hearing protection. When you're looking at changing that, is that actually like changing the physical structures of the boats to make them not as noisy? Is that something that might be happening? Well, that's a fundamental approach. Actually, that's also desirable, but that's also the most costly one. So, so about this part is basically the intervention usually needs to be at the regulatory level on the construction of vessels. 
when we're talking about small fishing vessels or small vessels in general, compared to large vessel, the regulations and the governance is not as strong, as comprehensive, as strict. It's also considered their operational and the nature of their business. So that's why to improve the construction standard, let's say at the construction level, to ensure that the noise can be controlled, the noise can be isolated, the noise can be um, eliminated, usually will take a much longer regulatory efforts. Uh, so that's basically a major challenge we identified. The second approach is, let's say, thinking about at the provincial occupational health and safety hazards. There is a general provincial occupational health and safety hazards. Basically, if the noise level is beyond certain level, there need to be monitored. And at the same time, if there are hearing loss occurred, then that would be compensatable. But the challenge is how to engage the industry, for example, to have a regular check of the fishing harvesters hearing health. And hearing loss is only one health impact from noise exposure. The second one is non-auditory health impact. For example, the chance to get cardiovascular disease, including hypertension. So there are also some chronic disease need to be traced. Well, currently we not comprehensively cover all those things. And uh, even when we communicate with all the fishing harvesters in Newfoundland, we ask them uh, what do they think would be the most useful tools for them to basically protect their hearing, protecting their house in the noise noisy working environment. They say need more education. And they also would like to know more about what coverage available for them and whether, for example, they need to go to the hearing test. So whether this resource would be available for them. Hearing loss, when it occurs, when it's noticed, usually at the very late stage. So from a kind of early stage to engage young fishing harvesters, current generation, to make sure they pay attention to their hearing, to pay attention to the uh, regular hearing tests, but at the same time also to destigmatize, because with hearing loss, you also have the stigma related to that. And that also become a barrier for the fishing harvesters to actively engage in that conversation. They do realize that noise is a hazard for them, and they do want it to protect themselves. And one fish harvester actually she shared is when she tried to wear the hearing protector. But because of that, she actually increased the risk almost falling overboard. So that is basically a very difficult judgment call for her to sacrifice hearing loss, which is not fatal, and then try to avoid another fatal risk on board. So that is a major challenge when we're talking about occupational health and safety on board. Yeah. And I wonder, like you mentioned the education side, like, is there maybe like when they're looking at safety and maybe the cost or the practicality or just the, the risks associated, is education part of that so that they know that this is important to invest in this or learn about this? I would say this is more like empowering. Fish harvesters know their working environment best. So what they really need is actually, for example, what's covered and what would be the prevention measures they can take and then where to knock which door if they need help. They have a strong consensus to recognize noise exposure as a hazard. But when they are, it's also desirable for them to make the vessel safe and to control the noise level on board the vessel. But the issue is like they feel they have limited resources to address that. So that's a major challenge. So when we're thinking about education and awareness resources, not just for fish harvesters, I would say, also for our, let's say, the operator manager, and then to identify this issue, to promote this, to do the engagement with the fishing community, and then to help them to prevent. Because when there are claims, that's also workers' compensation board need to take a measure to prevent that because those things become a claim and that means compensation. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess we could talk a bit more about the protection side. Um, yeah. So maybe just tell me a bit more about the work you're doing there as far as protecting people in this industry. The major challenge, legally speaking, in Canada when we're doing this type of study is federal provincial jurisdictions. So for navigation and shipping generally falling under federal occupational health and safety jurisdiction. But for fishing, considering it could be local, 
considering it may not be interprovincial. But in some cases, our fishing people also do interprovincial activities. So we are actually facing a very complicated workforce. And when we're talking about protection, first, if there is occupational health and safety in compliance, should provincial occupational health and safety authority be notified and then issued corrections, warning those things, or should they transfer Canada or those people in charge of、uh, vessel safety being involved? So what we cover is whether first under occupational health and safety law whether. Fishing activities being covered by the provincial occupational health and safety law. Is there any specialized guideline? Because if you have very general occupational health and safety standards applicable to vessel, more likely our fishing industry will say it's not realistic to apply those at sea. If you basically use those land-based standards. So that's why the first study I did is to study whether under their occupational health and safety whether fishing would be covered in Nova Scotia and in Newfoundland it's covered, but in New Brunswick and PI relatively not as strong and explicit. And for the workers' compensation, similarly, so、uh, strongest、uh, basically more detailed information being found under Newfoundland and Labrador, and then is、uh, Nova Scotia. For New Brunswick and PEI, there needs to be a more comprehensive review and to enhance their occupational health and safety protection as well as workers' compensation coverage. It's also about resources. So basically, workers' compensation board they need to provide coverage for all industries or people being covered by this workers' compensation scheme.、Um, To have special attention to the fishing harvesters, so it may requires more attention from them. One thing I recently observed is also from the protection level, not all fishing harvesters could be covered by workers' compensation in some of the provinces. That is quite shocking for me when I identify that, and also occupational health and safety law in、uh, one province、uh, exclude fishing from their occupational health and safety coverage to ensure fishing harvester also have equivalent coverage as other workforce would be important. So if we couldn't overnightly change the safety working environment, at least let's do the protection well. So that's probably one concern I have. Uh, the other concern I have is about the current complexity of the governance regarding fishing, fishing safety. It has some federal component. It also has some provincial components. But when things involve、uh, too many chefs in the kitchen,、uh, to coordinate those things might be difficult. And also, in particular, makes the frontline、uh, fishing harvesters in a more vulnerable situation. Because when things occur, it takes them more challenges and more time to understand the system. In Newfoundland, actually, they give more instruction for the fishing harvester. They do have a kind of guidelines.、Uh, Nova Scotia has some, but New Brunswick and PEI, from their public website information, very limited. So this is probably also one thing I identified. There might be some of the efforts made by the provincial. Workers' Compensation Board, but to communicate to the public to make sure the people in the need could find the right resources, that would be an, another concern. And I guess, like, do you have any insights on why they would not be covered? Like, why is that happening? Or the bureaucracy? Like, why is there more of that in that industry versus other industries? Do you have any ideas? This is not just Atlantic Canada. I would say, globally speaking, maritime jurisdiction is really. One of the most challenging part. The reason is one because of their mob mobility. For those traditional occupational health and safety standards, let's say developed in those high risk sector, for example, mining, they're fixed somewhere online. They are not basically say today Connerbrook mine, the next day the mine moved to Saint John's or Bonavista. But if you're doing fishing, where the fish goes, you goes. So that's why, for many other jurisdictions, for other countries, it's also a challenge to provide、uh, compensation coverage for the、uh, crew. And in Atlantic Canada, 
I would say if we compare with other countries' protection regarding fishers, at least Newfoundland, Labrador, and uh, Nova Scotia provide such provisions, protection for their fish harvesters, for the people working in the fishing industry. So what are some recommendations you might have to improve the things we've been talking about? First thing I think is the review and also a better communication for the fishing harvester in these four provinces so they could get the resources they need. Uh, if there is a limitation or gaps in the workers' compensation coverage, that is urgent needed to be filled. Secondly, even for those with coverage, let's say in Newfoundland, Labrador, they got on-season, but what about off-season, in particular when they are doing preparation? So could this workplace announce coverage extend? Thirdly, for drawing upon the hearing loss one. So that is probably a kind of um, excellent case for a how to address occupational health and safety hazard. It's kind of an invisible occupational health and safety hazard among fish harvesters. So one hand, it's, it's got covered under the NL workers' compensation scheme, but how to prevent that. So there need to be some resources to ensure there are regular tests, not just hearing tests, regular health check available for our fish harvesters. So, so that is basically some of the more practical side of recommendation. Um, for the more higher level is a regional coordination. If there could be, let's say, a regional coordinate fishing health and safety governance in the Atlantic Canada, and that could better be coordinated with the federal maritime safety, maritime training. So that probably could make this whole system more efficient. Because if you have an integrated portal for the user, it's much easier rather than the user going to too many departments to find the information he or she needs. This work probably can be very challenging when you're dealing with loss or, or claims or, or people who are struggling. So, um, yeah, I guess I'm just curious say what kind of what got you interested in, in doing this work and, and working with people who work at sea? So, my first career, I was trained to be a maritime lawyer in China. When I was started to practice in a port city in China, basically my day to day life, one of the job tasks is to deal with personal injuries and fatalities at sea. So people who could be killed at sea. It's basically quite frequent every year. You basically receive those um, uh, fetal accidents claims. And as a maritime lawyer, our job is to handle those claims from um, seafarers, from fish harvester. In one case, actually, it's a marine casualty occurred in South China Sea about 12 people died in that case. And it became a super difficult process to handle that claim, to settle that claim with all the surviving families. The main challenge for me at that time is there was so limited legal instruments available, no access to workers' compensation for sure, blocked. And um, then we need to use alternative legal resources to handle that claim. First, it's also very challenging for the ship owner side. It's even more challenging and devastating for the surviving family side. And after that case, I thought maybe I should do some research regarding that. So that's why I decided to become a researcher to, to do this. Uh, my first career actually is about workers' compensation for seafarers. So that is my PhD thesis. And then I came to Canada, focused more on the prevention side, occupational health and safety uh, for seafarers. And then working together with Professor Barbanis and Ratana, and we kind of open further to the fishing occupational health and safety. What's your connection to the ocean? My connection to the ocean is I feel my best when I'm near the ocean because a day by the sea is good for the soul. Next time on Connecting to the Ocean, I explore what the future of sustainable fisheries and coastal communities might look like. When you put in place policies that just take into account that this is an individual job and you, you don't take into account the rest, then you're forgetting about the community and about all the people that are involved in the community. 
So political autonomy, sustainable harvests, economic development, and community well-being were these kind of four big goals that people had for the, the future of the industry. You know, the sustainability of inshore fishery really is the sustainability of communities. It's the livelihood of people. But not only their livelihoods, it's their culture. You know, it, it's their reason for being. So, and that's particularly important here in Newfoundland Labrador. Connecting to the Ocean was produced by Michael Bartz, with production assistance from Evan Andrews, Truman Osmond, Nantikor Chayangun, Fesna Karezi, and Ratana Chumpakti. Special thanks to all the guests who gave generously of their time and expertise. I'm trying to save the planet, oh, will someone please save me? In Over My Head's Connecting to the Ocean season was made possible with support from the Ocean Frontier Institute Module I and Memorial University.